Kelsey Sumnick, founder of the Foreign Policy Project. And I'm Lucy Goulet, founder of Women in Foreign Policy. This, this is the Women, Women in, in Diplomacy, Diplomacy podcast. podcast. This is our monthly podcast special edition episode where we introduce you to women in tech. They are women making an impact in foreign policy. Our guest for this episode is Lori Edelman, Director of Global Communications for Planned Parenthood. This interview was recorded just prior to the inauguration of a new administration in the United States on January 20th, 2017. So our conversation contains some policy predictions that now have been enacted. To learn more and access the latest updates, please go to plannedparenthoodaction.org. You can also follow Lori's work on Twitter at ppglobe. Additionally, we provide resources that stem from this interview at womeninforeignpolicy.org and theforeignpolicyproject.org. Hi, Lori, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Can you tell us a bit about Planned Parenthood Global and summarize the organization's work abroad for us? Sure. Uh, So many folks might be a bit more familiar with Planned Parenthood's work across the United States, but actually we've been working globally as Planned Parenthood for more than 40 years. Um, Planned Parenthood Global is the international arm of PPFA, and our model is um, not to outsource health centers overseas, but actually to support partners. Um, We have a focus on um, women, men, and young people in some of the world's most neglected areas. Um, And our goal is to make sure that they have access to the healthcare that they need to control their bodies and their futures. So right now, um, we support over 100 grassroots reproductive and community groups with both financial and technical assistance. And the idea is that we look to bring all different kinds of groups to the table. So um, we have not just a focus on advocacy, but also service delivery. Uh, We think that the work gets done better when youth organizations come together with professional groups like lawyers and doctors um, and journalists. So um, you get the idea there. And I think one thing that I'm really proud of um, is that over the last um, uh, fiscal year, Um, we have really been able to grow our work. So our goal um, was to uh, reach over 1 million people with sexual and reproductive health information and services over the course of our um, five-year strategic plan. We ended up reaching over 5 million people through our partners with sexual reproductive health information and services. And that includes, by the way, Another thing I'm really proud of, over 60,000 safe abortion and post-abortion care procedures last year alone. Um, So that's something where um, you know that uh, helping people to access a full package of reproductive health care in the U.S. is important to Planned Parenthood. That's also important to us globally. Thank you so much for sharing. And I have to admit... I'm from the U.S. I'm very familiar with Planned Parenthood's national work, and I just had no idea how far your global reach was. For example, you are in 12 countries throughout Latin America and Africa, and and your network includes over 6,000 advocates that are trained to understand and leverage human rights frameworks, laws, and mechanisms. That seems to me to be critical to foreign policy. That's right. I mean, I think we 
Similar to uh, the way that we operate in the U.S., uh, we know that to advance um, the issue of sexual and reproductive health globally, um, you can't just look at services, um, that there is has to be that advocacy component there, um, or really um, the, the work just cannot advance. There's a new administration being sworn in on Friday. What do you think the effect is going to be in terms of reproductive health worldwide? What can you see the impact being? Yes. Um, thank you for the question. And of course, um, we were not pleased with the results of the U.S. presidential election. And, you know, as you're alluding to, now we see with the incoming administration that um, we have an extreme push by politicians like Vice President-elect Mike Pence, who in the U.S. want to defund and shut down Planned Parenthood. Um, which would deny millions of people access to services that um, they rely on. Um, but we are also seeing that these attacks are not just attacks on Planned Parenthood, but they're attacks against the reproductive rights movement that um, Planned Parenthood stands for. And so um, Planned Parenthood Global ourselves are not uh, currently receiving um, USAID money. So there would not be um, a direct, you know, defund effort in the same way that Planned Parenthood in the U.S. is facing defunding under the Trump administration. But we are extremely concerned um, with the impact that this incoming administration could have on women, young people, and communities in the global South and around the world. Because as you all know, um, the U.S. is a, a huge contributor to so many global health programs, you know, the leading bilateral donor for um, family planning and um, really um, meant to be a um, beacon of um, progressive uh, values and democracy and global health around the world. Um, and we have seen indications, although um, we can't know for sure, uh, that some of that legacy and um, some of those contributions may be in jeopardy. So most immediately, uh, we are very concerned about the possible reinstatement of the global gag rule. As you all know, um, the global gag rule, is also known as the Mexico City policy, is something that's not currently in place, but it could be reinstated by Donald Trump. And um, unfortunately, uh, the consensus among the global health community is that um, that is actually a relatively likely scenario. And this would not require a legislative process of any kind. It wouldn't require, you know, a Supreme Court decision. All it um, would need is an executive order to be imposed. And essentially, this um, would seriously impede countries' efforts to improve women's health by uh, needlessly and devastatingly forcing healthcare providers to choose, to choose between becoming a recipient of U.S. family planning assistance um, and the ability to counsel, provide clients with abortion services, to even advocate for abortion services, even with their own money, even if it's completely legal um, in their own country as a condition of receiving even $1 of U.S. funding. So um, this is a terrible policy that we are quite concerned about. Um, the U.S. should not be imposing um, standards on organizations outside of its borders that it wouldn't even stand for. 
um, imposing within its borders, yet that's exactly what it does through the global gag rule. And we know that this has an absolutely chilling effect and a devastating effect on groups that are working to advance global health and specifically sexual reproductive health and rights around the world. So that's one example. We're also, of course, worried about levels of international uh, family planning funding. There was a questionnaire circulated among the global health community this weekend that uh, was very worrisome and essentially asked the question, is foreign aid worth it? Now, you know, and I know that the answer is resoundingly yes. Um, to take a very numerical example, um, the U.S. investment of over $600 million in international family planning just in the last fiscal year, in fiscal year 2015, helped avert over 6 million unintended pregnancies, over 2 million abortions, and thousands of maternal deaths. So that's a for lack of a better phrase, return on investment that we know is pretty unbeatable if you want to look at the raw numbers. Um, but this questionnaire seems to indicate that um, the administration might feel differently. Of course, uh, again, we don't know for sure. And um, the only thing that there's really precedent around for this administration is unpredictability. So um, we can't be certain, but um, the global community certainly has reason to be concerned and Planned Parenthood Global uh, shares that concern. I've got a follow-up question on this, actually. I'm French, and as you might know, we are about to have uh, presidential elections coming up in France at the end of April and in early May. And one of the most prominent right-wing candidates has recently said that he personally opposed abortion, but that he wouldn't do anything in the law to um, forbid it. Now, my concern is that America, as you've alluded to earlier, is often seen as a very progressive country, including in terms of abortion rights. And I was wondering if you have any worry about how the world's general view on abortion and reproductive rights might change as a result of a very conservative administration in the field. Absolutely. I think we're absolutely concerned about um, the effects uh, on, on countries worldwide and what it means symbolically and practically speaking when the United States um, sends this message that we are anti-abortion. Now, keep in mind, this is not actually a popular opinion uh, among Americans. We know that um, Donald Trump did not win the popular vote um, in the United States. Um, we also know that, um, you know, in the United States, Planned Parenthood is actually wildly popular. We are more popular um, than the United States Congress, for example. And um, we know that um, 16 separate nationwide polls and nine polls in key swing states showed strong favorability for Planned Parenthood and strong opposition to, quote, defunding efforts, you know, um, what we're calling this effort to really strip away care from um, the country's most uh, vulnerable uh, communities. So um, this is not popular. People did not elect Donald Trump to send a message to the world that the U.S. is against abortion access. In fact, we know that even among Trump's own supporters, um, 
he does not have a majority mandate to go after Planned Parenthood and to go after reproductive health care. So this is something from the global perspective that we're very concerned about. And we know that even the threat of a policy like the global gag rule in the past has had a chilling effect um, on the entire field of uh, family planning and sexual reproductive health and rights, because people know that even if the gag rule isn't in effect today or tomorrow, it could be down the line. So, you know what? Why don't I just avoid all of that trouble of having to, you know, set up infrastructure, you know, policies and um, services around, um, you know, abortion care when I know that my funding could become jeopardized down the road if I have that in place. And so this chilling effect is something we've been raising the alarm around for a very long time. And certainly the incoming administration is not being helpful at all in this way. Lori, what is your role at Planned Parenthood Global and what would your average every day be like? I have been with Planned Parenthood for uh, just about three and a half years now, and uh, I'm new to the role of Director of Global Communications, and I'm really excited. Um, This is my first role as a director in my professional career, so um, I've actually, you know, grown my role at Planned Parenthood and um, been really pleased to be able to do that and stay here. I think that average age for millennials these days, the average amount of time for millennials these days to stay in a role is two years. So I'm at almost double that and I'm pretty excited about it. And um, what my role means is that um, I am lead the uh, implementation of Planned Parenthood Global Strategic Communications work. And um, within the specific uh, organization of Planned Parenthood, because we do have such a robust um, U.S. domestic organization to um, stay in touch with, I sit basically on two different teams. So uh, I'm part of the broader Planned Parenthood communications team, where I sort of serve as their global point of contact. And of course, I'm part of the Planned Parenthood Global team where I serve as their communications focal point. And I have an excellent team here. Um, Stuart Sia is the global communications officer who recently joined us and, you know, has brought a lot of, um, you know, professional media uh, experience. And uh, we also have um, some fellows from the Barbara Bush organization, Global Health Corps, um, who sit with us and support our communications work. So I'm really lucky to have um, that uh that team in place here to support all of the global communications work. And I would say that um, a day in the life is um, really diverse. And every day uh, we see new challenges and we see um, new tasks come up. Um, But really the through line is that every day is uh, pretty fast paced, reliably fast paced. Um, We see uh, really any range of communications challenges come up, you know, whether there's something in the news that pertains to, um, you know, an abortion law in another country being changed or protests um, being staged, or perhaps um, a partner is seeking 
technical assistance on a communications campaign that they're working on in country. Um, sometimes we are working with um, the president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America, Cecile Richards, or another senior leader of Planned Parenthood to make sure that they understand what um, is happening at the global level and are able to um, communicate that to the audiences that are meaningful to their work. And so um, on any given day, I would say, you know, I could be in, in, in a meeting or on a Skype call with six different countries. Um, you know, we, we tend to have very early Skype calls to make sure that um, we can connect with folks who are, um, you know, in, in Africa and in different places where the time zone is different. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the pace is fast and that's kind of just how I like it. You work on global communication, including, among other things, the global Planned Parenthood social media. What role do you feel technology plays in today's global health foreign policy? Absolutely. Um, well, I think technology plays um, an increasingly large role uh, in advancing global health. And I think it's an exciting time to be working in global health and, you know, seeing communications as a vehicle for advancing global health specifically because um, we're seeing, you know, greater levels of connectivity um, and we're seeing such high levels of um, creativity from people all around the world in using communications to advocate for themselves and share their own stories. I think there was a time, you know, some might call it a dark time um, in the global health and, and foreign assistance space where um, communications were often a one-way street and, um, you know, donor governments or people in the Western world uh, were often the ones who had access to the technology in order to dominate the narrative about um, any particular issue um, and, and, you know, to determine which stories would rise to the top when it comes to global health. And I think now um, some of that still happens, of course, but we're in an interesting time where, um, you know, you, you can't publish an article online about um, someone else and expect them to, you know, not be also reading it along with perhaps whoever your intended audience is. And you can Instead of going and asking someone about their story and then writing it up and sharing it, um, you can ask them to write it uh, themselves um, and share it themselves. And, um, you know, I think that enables a, a very much more interesting, um, you know, and more ethical opportunity to use communications to um, get people interested in global health, understand its importance and its value. Um, and so that's why I think right now is a pretty exciting time for, for global health communications. You also run Feministing. A, it's a long-running and popular blog by and for young feminists. Can you tell us about that? And also, how do you balance a, a day job and a side hustle? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for that question, because I think, um, you know, sometimes I'll go and I'll um, be on college campuses and you know, give talks and things. And this is one of the things that comes up the most um, when you talk to, to younger folks um, is that they're really interested to know, you know, do they have to get rid of their blog or their, you know, even if they have an active Twitter account that takes time to curate and maintain um, in order to, you know, quote unquote, get a real job? Or is there a way for them to um, kind of can keep a variety uh, of gigs going? And that's just something that I think increasingly people see as uh, as attractive. And it's something that um, 
I feel has really been beneficial for my career because um, I know that when I first started writing on the internet about feminism and things like gender and reproductive health, um, I was, you know, newly out of college. So dating myself here, but this was like sort of back in 2008, 2009. And a lot of my family members and even my, my peers and my professors kind of gave me a side eye and were very confused about why I would want to kind of be going on the record with uh, my views on all of these things. And they viewed it as a very risky move. And now, you know, I can tell you with certainty that um, so many uh, employers have t- have told me that my involvement with um, with blogging and my involvement with writing and media, being able to build that experience really on my own with a with my online community outside of more formal uh, and traditional routes um, was a bonus for them and was definitely a plus in wanting to bring me onto the team. That they saw that as something that was desirable as you know as a resume boost. And which is ironic because I thought I was sacrificing something when I um, took on kind of a passion project on the side, but really it turned out to be um, something where I learned so much and and now able to bring that um, to my employer in the nonprofit sector. So, um, you know, that's something that I think won't always be the case, but is happening more and more. And I encourage people, um, you know, not to shy away from pursuing multiple um, interests at the same time, if it's something where they um, see themselves not necessarily able able to choose one over the other right away, or still feeling like they get value um, out of out of those different projects. I think um, we're in a time when you don't have to choose one or the other. So um, I'm really excited about that. And I, I love to, to talk about that because um, I think especially for uh, millennials and, you know, Gen Zers, um, we do kind of have this um, insatiable, you know, attention span. And um, this is just one more way to fill that. How can we stay in touch with your work? Um, So I personally, as Lori Edelman, have a Twitter account. I'm at L Edelman. And Planned Parenthood Global is also on Twitter at PP Globe. And we are on Tumblr as well. You can find us two ways there by visiting healthiestgeneration.com or by um, actually going to genhealth, G-E-N, health.tumblr.com. To wrap up our traditional last questions, what advice would you give to young women who are interested in careers like yours? I think the kindest compliment I've ever received in a professional setting to this day has um, been that I have good instincts. And I think um, so many young women especially are um, encouraged when they enter the workforce to put their instincts aside in order to um, kind of learn the way of the world and, and um, you know, get their bearings. And I think it's really, it is really important to Um, take lessons from those around you and um, learn the ropes. But it's also really important to keep that um, instinct that you have and trust yourself. And I think especially when it comes to communications and global health, um, there has to be a voice of authenticity that shines through all of the NGO jargon and um, all of the, uh, you know, uh, all of the field. um, uh, I don't want to curse, but 
I'll say all of the things that um, can come up when you're um, working in global health. I think um, you you always want to be able to go back and trust your judgment and say, well, you know, is it ethical to use this photo of this person? You know, have I talked to them about all the ways in which it will be used? Or, you know, is there a more accessible way that I can um, communicate about this policy so that more young people understand its impact on their lives or their peers around the world, you know? And those are the kinds of questions that I think um, surface for young women naturally, and they often can get squashed um, just by um, all the formal processes of um, communications in global health, but they shouldn't. So trust your instincts. Um, and that that's kind of um, something that I think will propel you forward and also make your work footprint unique.